Lord, pray. Lord, we thank you for this time together. Thank you for your blessings on our gathering here. Thank you, too, for the promise that we have in your word that as we show your word, it will not return to you void. And so we pray your blessing on John as he preaches your word. Give him strength, give him courage, give him boldness to speak as you would have him to. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Ladies here. Good morning to everyone. Welcome here this morning to this part of the service. I want to thank you, Jaden, for your devotional. Um, most of us will, at some point in time, encounter that question. Um, it's a great opportunity, and I want to publicly commend you for your answer in that. I think that's an opportunity well taken. Some of you might remember uh, a number of weeks ago, I think it was around Mother's Day, uh, I spoke about some of the women who are mentioned by name in the Bible, and there aren't many. Out of the roughly 3,000 people mentioned by name throughout the Bible, only about 100 women are named. And of all the recorded words spoken in the Bible, only about 1% are words that were spoken by women. There are, however, a number of women who played a very important, a very influential role in biblical history. I want to look at a few of those today. We'll look at some of the good as well as the bad. Uh, last Sunday, for those of you who here, Lester spoke about fathers, about God's given, uh, given role to men of leadership. And I came across a quote by Matthew Henry, the writer of the well-known Bible commentary. He said, God made Eve from a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled under him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. So today is not about the respective role of men versus women, nor is it about the conflict that sometimes arises when those roles are misunderstood, ignored, or reversed. And as much as we sometimes sigh at the model um, that's presented to us in Proverbs 31, I would like to read that um, as an opening, and if you would, turn with me to Proverbs 31, starting in verse 10. And I want to kind of, instead of focusing on what can be, what can seem to be a very monotonous, um, never-ending domestic role of the woman described here, let's focus instead on the range, the diversity of activities that are described here. And I want to read this in the New Living uh, for clarity of some of the things that he says here. So Proverbs 31, starting in verse 10, my title here is A Wife of Noble Character. That's a subtitle here in my Bible. It says, Who can find a virtuous and capable wife? She is more precious than rubies. Her husband can trust her, and she will greatly enrich his life. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She finds wool and flax and busily spins it. She is like a merchant ship, bringing her food from afar. She gets up before dawn to, to prepare breakfast for her household and plans the day's work for her servant girls. She goes to inspect a field and buys it. With her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She's energetic and strong, a hard worker. She makes sure her dealings are profitable. Her lamp burns late into the night. Her hands are busy spinning thread, her fingers twisting fiber. She extends a helping hand to the poor and opens her arms to the needy. She has no fear of winter for her household, for everyone has warm clothes. She makes her own bedspreads. She dresses in fine linen and purple gowns. Her husband is well known in the city gates where he sits with other civic leaders. 
She makes belted linen garments and sashes to sell to the merchants. She is clothed with strength and dignity, and she laughs without fear of the future. When she speaks, her words are wise. She gives instructions with kindness. She carefully watches everything in her household and suffers nothing from laziness. Her children stand by and bless her. Her husband praises her. There are many virtuous and capable women in the world, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive. Beauty does not last. But a woman who fears the Lord will be greatly praised. Reward her for all she has done. Let her deeds publicly declare her praise. So while there's the obvious duties of managing, taking care of her household, there's some other things mentioned here as well. Uh, Verse 11 says she is trustworthy. Whether looking at men or women, uh, the the character trait of trustworthiness ranks very, very high um, towards the top of the list in importance. If if a person cannot be trusted, it will be very difficult to be very successful in life if you're not a trustworthy person. Verse 14 mentions bringing food from afar. So in the same way that a businessman um, chooses his suppliers carefully, a wise woman may kind of shop around, as we say, whether for diversity in her selections or whether a better value for her purchases, she's, she's selective in where she gets her things. Verse 16 mentions her own earnings, possibly from things she makes or sells. It also mentions, almost in passing, the purchasing of land. So husbands, according to this, it should be not surprising to you for your wife to meet you at the door in the evening and say, hey, by the way, honey, I've purchased those 30 acres next door I've been watching. And... Um, Maybe that's normal in your house, and if so, thank God for a wife that's simply following her calling. (laughs) Um, In verse 20, she looks beyond the needs of her immediate family. Verse 23, your husband is well respected in the community. We've heard the phrase that behind every great man is a great woman, or some variation of that. And this is one area where a woman's influence plays a very important role. For good or for bad, we'll look more at that later. Verse... uh, 25 uses the phrase, she laughs without fear of the future. And this speaks of someone who has joy in spite of uncertain times, someone who has done all she can to be prepared and yet still realize that her plans can be upended in an instant, someone who chooses to trust in God, that he has it all figured out even when she doesn't, and so she can look at the future with a, a relaxed attitude, one of almost laughing and saying, what, whatever God brings, I'm good with that. Verse 28, she works for the future as well as the present. And as I mentioned before, this list can look rather intimidating, um, but it can also be looked at in two ways. It can seem very overwhelming to attempt to accomplish all that's listed above. And I really have my doubts that my wife will ever purchase land on her own um, or run a business. That's not her gifts. Or this list can be looked at a very broad range of possibilities to pursue. Different women will find themselves identifying with different aspects of the activities mentioned here, different parts of this list. I'm very doubtful that there's many women who excel at everything that we just read. Um, Might be, but probably few and far between. So just as God created men with diversity and talents, he also created women with diversity as well. If I could be permitted to kind of generalize for a minute, I would say that if God gave men the gift of leadership, he gave women the gift of influence. And as with all general statements, maybe you agree, maybe you don't, based on your own personality, where you find yourself in life, and what God has gifted you with. But I kind of want to start off on that thought. And today I want to look at women who found themselves in situations where 
Their influence greatly affected those around them. Uh, I spoke about Eve last time, so I won't go there again today. I think it would be very safe to say that Eve's influence over Adam probably did more to change the course of history than any woman, any woman after her. So beyond that obvious one, if you would turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 25. First Samuel 25, a little background here. This was during the time that David was on the run from King Saul. In the chapter before this, David had secretly cut off a piece of Saul's robe, but spared his life as when Saul entered the cave where David's men were hiding. And Saul apologized, and he and David called this rather uneasy truce um, for a time. And then we have this chapter here kind of inserted in the middle of that whole scenario there. So First Samuel chapter 25 I will read the entire chapter just simply because it's hard to break it up and still get a, a full picture. Then Samuel died. The Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man of Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The man's name was Nabal, his wife, and the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him, by, greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shears. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to these words in the name of David and waited. Then Nabal asked David's servants and said, Who is David, and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and water and my meat that I have killed for my shears? And give it to men who I do not know where they came from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. <coughs> now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men are very good to us. We were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as they accompanied, as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by night and day, all the time we, we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore, no one consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep array dressed, five measures of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, Go on before me, see, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was, as she rode on the donkey, when she went down under the cover of a hill, there was David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. And David said, Surely in vain have I protected all this fellow has in the wilderness, so nothing was missed of all that belongs to him. 
and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. Now when, David, when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. So she fell on his face and said, O my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak to your ears. Hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourselves with your own hand, now, let, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespasses of your maidservant. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because the Lord fights my battles, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of his sling. And it shall come to pass, when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, neither that you have shed blood without cause, or that my Lord has avenged himself. When the Lord has dwelt well with my Lord, please remember your maidservant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed, and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received her from her hand what she brought him, and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was, holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk, Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. Then it happened after about ten days that the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord had returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife, when the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her, saying, <clears throat> David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth, and said, Here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail arose in haste, rode on the donkey, attended by five of her maidens, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. So as I said, David and his men were on the run from Saul. Uh, Samuel had just died, leaving Israel without a spiritual leader at the time. And Samuel was one of the last things that, were, that was standing between David's safety and Saul's attempt to kill him. So when Samuel died, David once again retreated into the wilderness with his men because he correctly assumed that Saul would again pursue him, which in fact Saul did in the following chapter. So here is David living, hiding in the wilderness with, as it tells us here, at least 600 men, uh, some of which probably had wives and family. So there could have easily been well over a thousand people in this group. 
Now this no doubt took a fair bit of food, and as they were on the move, they didn't have time to grow vegetables, grow grain, so I'm not sure how they got all their food, um, but I'm sure, you know, it was a daily uh, challenge. So the arrangement they had to protect Nabal's property appears to have been somewhat of an informal arrangement, um, and David's request in, indicates that David's men not stealing anything was probably as big a deal as their protection for Nabal. And I'm sure the temptation to help themselves to the occasional sheep or two crossed the minds of David's men when it was their turn to find supper. Um, nevertheless, in verse 16, it says, they were a wall of protection around Nabal's possessions. Um, they kept other things from happening. Living next to or into the in the wilderness here, there was no doubt, um, no shortage of wild animals, bandits, uh, other men on the run who would like to steal from the flocks. <clears throat> and David's men prevented that from happening. So Nabal should have been grateful. Uh, shearing time was a time of great celebration, feasting. It was the harvest time, if you please, for someone who raised, who, um, raised animals. And when the service, servants brought David's request to Nabal, um, the servant, Nabal's servants knew what David's servants were doing. They appreciated it. They appreciated David's presence, and they knew what was happening there. But by Nabal's response in verse 10, we don't know if he was so truly out of touch with his operation that he didn't know who David was, or more likely was just pretending to be ignorant to avoid compensating David for what he had done. Um, judging by his character, probably he was just pretending to be ignorant. So one of the servants had the presence of mind to inform Nabal's wife of what was going on as well. And by the tone of his conversation with her, we can surmise this was probably not the first time that he looked to her in search of a bit more level-headed decision and also noted that telling your boss's wife that he is so ill-tempered and worthless that he can't be worked with certainly sounds a little risky unless you're on fairly good terms with her. Um, so one gets the idea that Nabal was very successful in spite of himself or maybe even largely because of his wife's uh, management, influence, we might ask the question, how the two of them get together? Um, that was my question until I remember, well, back then it was all arranged marriages, and as a very wealthy man, he probably had his pick of who he wanted. So anyway, um, when Abigail heard of this, she only took just a very short time to assess the situation. She made a decision, she formed a plan, and she carried it out just about that fast. And she met David and his men as they were coming to destroy everyone. So even an hour or two hesitation on her plan, on her part, would have probably been too late because David was already on his way and he was in a very foul mood and he was very intent on revenge. So I want to notice especially what she told David <clears throat> when she met him. Uh, verse 24, she took responsibility for her husband's actions while at the same time not defending his lack of character. And I don't know how to go with all that sometimes. Um, she, she didn't hide the fact that he was not a godly man. Um, she was very honest about that. At the same time, um, as his wife, she took the responsibility that her husband should have taken. And her appeals to David were not to spare her life or her family's, but it was to avoid the mark that taking revenge would leave on David's character and reputation in the future. So she was appealing to his future, not to hers. 
And she presented her gifts and then asked that David would remember her generosity in the future, which he did. David responded by thanking her, not just for the gifts that she had given, which were um, needed, obviously, that was the whole idea of the request in the first place, is they needed food, but also for her wise advice. He recognized that what she said was wise, what she said was true, and he agreed that, no, he did not want this on his record in the future of just shedding um, a lot of innocent blood. So they went their separate ways in peace, only to meet again when God intervened, ended Nabal's life, and Abigail became David's wife. So I look at Abigail's response to an emergency situation, um, life or death situation, really, only a matter of time, and I think she knew that. I'm impressed by what I perceive as her calm but very effective response. She didn't go into a panic, but instead quickly took action, and her skill in appealing to David's own good and not just begging for her own life on her own behalf not only saved her life, but also won the respect of David as well. So in her, we have an example for both us men and also the ladies of how to properly use influence, not only save lives, but to prevent people from doing things they would later regret. As a second example, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, turn to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, the first 10 verses. And there went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him that was a, god, a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could no longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes, daubed it with slime and with pitch, and put the child therein and laid it in the flags by the river's brink. And her sister stood afar off to what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself in the river, and her maidens walked along by the river's side. When she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. <clears throat> and when she had opened it, she saw the child. Behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away, and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. So here we meet an unnamed young girl, and baby Moses' older sister, we later learn, is named Miriam. History would suggest she may have been 14, 15, somewhere in there, years old at this, at this time. And she was given the rather daunting task of watching over her baby brother as he floated at the edge of the mighty Nile River. And this same river, as we know from the story, where dozens, possibly hundreds of baby boys before him had been killed by Pharaoh's orders in an attempt to slow down the growth of the Israelite population. So Miriam here was a very key part of this plan, a plan most likely thought up by her parents in an attempt to somehow save Moses' life. I don't think this was an accident. I think they had actually thought through this and were hoping that this may happen. Um, Miriam's part was to appeal to Pharaoh's daughter, who I think they knew visited that part of the river to bathe, and hopefully to influence her to save and not to destroy the baby. And here we see that Miriam played her part very well. 
Again, she did not beg for the life of what was obviously a Hebrew baby to be spared, but instead appealed to the needs and convenience of the princess. She offered to get a nurse. Now, she never mentioned mother, although I'm fairly certain the princess knew that's who she, who she meant, um, to care for the child, then who she was implying the princess would now claim as her own. So there was a lot of things going on in this young girl's mind and in her, in her, her speech um, that maybe were kind of behind the scenes here, but we see how it worked out there. So the plan worked, and Moses was returned to his family um, with the blessing and protection promised by the princess. And we know it took some time, but God then used Moses in a very mighty way to lead his people out of slavery and toward the land he had promised them years earlier. Miriam was part of that later phase too, acting as the kind of worship leader for the people alongside Moses and their brother Aaron. So what can we learn from Miriam? Uh, one is never too young to allow themselves to be used by God, although I'm sure Miriam was probably afraid of the princess. Um, she did not allow her fear to prevent her from speaking out when the time came, and God then used her influence to protect a key player in his plan for his people. So influence can start at a very young age, um, even in the, the teen years here possibly. Now, not all influence is good. First uh, Kings 21. First Kings 21, the first 16 verses. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab spake unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, and I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near unto my house, and I will give thee for it a better vineyard than it, or, if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. And Naboth said unto Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. Ahab came to his house, heavy and displeased, because the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him, for he said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid down on his bed, and turned away his face, and would eat no bread. But Jezebel his wife came to him, and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad, thou eatest no bread? And he said, Because I spake unto Naboth the Jezreelite, and said unto him, give me, them the, give me thy vineyard for money, or else, if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give thee that, my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, came and said unto him, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, sent the letters unto the elders, to the nobles that were in the city dwelling with Naboth. And she wrote in the letters, saying, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth on high among the people, and set two men, sons of Belial, before him, to bear witness against him, saying, Thou hast blasphemed the Lord and the king, and then carry him out and stone him that he may die. So the men of the city, even the elders and the nobles who were in the inhabitants of the city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them, and as it is written in the letters which she sent unto them, they proclaimed a fast, set Naboth on high among the people, and there came in two men, children of Belial, and sat before him, and the men of Belial witnessed against him, even against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king, and they carried him forth out of the city and stoned him with stones that he died. And he sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth is stoned and is dead. And it came to pass, when Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give thee for money, for Naboth is not alive, but is dead. 
And it came to pass when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab rose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. So here we meet one of the most wicked women in the Bible, uh, Queen Jezebel, a, man, a woman totally committed to wiping out any connection of God, any mention of God. Uh, she was one of the number of non-Israelite women who married into um, Israelite men, and she caused no lack of trouble for her husband. From what I understand, she was the daughter of a pagan queen and married King Ahab as part of a treaty between the two nations. I guess they made a treaty and they got married to each other. I guess that's how it worked back then. Um, her single-minded goal in life seemed to be to draw as many people away, including her husband, away from God and toward idol worship of Baal. And if you study what all that consisted of, a very evil worship, child sacrifice, and, and the lot. Um, she was directly in charge of a number of false prophets, and they were the ones that faced Elijah when he challenged them on Mount Carmel, called down fire from heaven. And even after Elijah's God won that round, as you know the story, Elijah was still so afraid of Jezebel's threat that he went and hid. So even after that great victory, she still had such incredible influence that he still feared her. So Jezebel more or less ran the nation, it appears, through her husband's position as king. Now here we have a glimpse of her influence over her own husband, who was the king. Um, Ahab was not a good king, as we know the history of Israel. Uh, they had good, they had bad kings over the years. Ahab was definitely on the naughty list. And here we find him coveting some land that was not his. Now this land was right next door to his palace, and he made the mistake that some of us do of dreaming what opportunities that piece of land might present to him if it was his. It was not his, but he was already planning what he was going to do with it. You know, what a, what a perfect spot for his expanded herb garden. And the more he thought about it, just the more perfect this whole plan sounded. The only problem was um, the guy wouldn't sell it to him. And here we have to give Ahab some credit. Uh, he tried to work out a fair deal. He offered the um, Naboth money. Um, he offered a trade, and the land was not for sale because it was an inherited piece of land, and that would have gone against her customs to sell it. So Ahab did what any three-year-old would do. He went home to his room, and he pouted. Um, his wife found him there, and apparently didn't waste a lot of time trying to convince him, um, but simply went out and used her force um, in his place. So... She seated herself in his position, she wrote false letters, signed it with his name, sealed it with his seal, and sent them out. And apparently she had as much or more influence um, as the king with the others around her, because we don't read of anybody questioning her, nobody opposed her doing this, um, they all followed what she wrote. And so an innocent man died because of her wicked influence. She herself was not just being influenced, but I believe totally controlled by Satan. She had an agenda to destroy anything relating to or pertaining to God, and she used all her influence possible to that end. And her daughter, I believe, later married into the southern kingdom of Judah, the other half of, of Israel, and introduced Baal worship to that kingdom as well. And this became one of the main reasons why God allowed both Israel and Judah to be captured by foreign nations many years later. But Jezebel's influence, directly or indirectly, caused the downfall of the nation of Israel in the future. By her, by her bringing in her idol worship, 
um, strong influence pushing that through that encouraged the nation of, of Israel down that road which later brought on God's judgment. So hers is not a bad example to look on when we question why people sometimes make decisions that make no sense, only seem to promote evil. Um, it's very simple because they are motivated entirely by evil as we see here in the life of Jezebel. The last example is Esther. And we'll break in at chapter 4 in the book of Esther. And we know kind of the story here. Um, the king had a wife. Uh, his first wife displeased him. And if we were to read, we could probably assume that probably she had more decency than him and refused his rather obscene request to come uh, appear before all his drunken men. And so that um, displeased him. He pushed her out, went looking for a new wife. And through the course of events, Esther was chosen. And the fact that she was a Jew was apparently overlooked at that time. And so she found herself um, as a queen in the palace. And this was a young orphan girl, exiled from her homeland, becoming queen of a foreign nation. And that seems like stranger than fiction. Uh, it is, except that God was already at work and God was placing people where they would later be in the right place to work his plan. So in time, Esther found herself in a predicament. Her uncle, uh, Mordecai, or Mordecai, however you say it, was causing jealousy among the king's men by his loyal and his honest life. And so a plot was hatched to kill not just him, but while they were at it, kill all the Jews as well, which unknowingly included Esther. So Mordecai sends a message to Esther, informing her of the current situation and pleading for her help, which brings us to chapter 4, and we'll break in at verse 10. And Esther spake unto Hatak and said him, gave him commandment unto Mordecai, all the king's servants and all the people of the king's province do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court, who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called in to come into unto the king these thirty days. They told Mordecai Esther's words. Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed, and who knoweth whether thou come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther bade them to return Mordecai this answer, go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and, and fast ye for me. Neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also, my maidens, will fast likewise, and so I will go in unto the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. So Mordecai realizes that Esther is in a position of significance, um, and he appeals to her that maybe you're there, maybe God put you there for such a time as this. And she initially resisted, um, said, you know, that's, that's endangering my life, and after some back and forth, she finally um, heeds his appeal and promises that after some prayer and fasting, much prayer and fasting, that she would appeal to the king. And her rather famous quote um, if I perish, I perish. She recognized that her life is not more important than the task that she is called to do. 
acknowledges that she really has no choice but to try and accomplish what is set before her there. And if we were to keep reading, um, we would see that Esther used her influence carefully, used it wisely. Although she was the queen, her relationship with the king was much different than a husband and wife today. Uh, verse 11 says they hadn't seen each other in a month. Um, but she did win the king's favor with not one but two delicious meals. So good food is always does wonders to, to um, I guess, loosen things up a bit there. And on the night between those two suppers, God caused the king to, remembers, to remember Mordecai's loyalty in the past. He read through, he couldn't sleep, he read through the past records in hopes of putting him to sleep and read about um, something Mordecai had done that had never been rewarded. So God was already preparing the king's heart for Esther's request. And when she did announce her request and for her and her people to be spared, God had already begun to, to turn the king's heart in favor of the Jews. So this is a very beautiful picture of Esther using her godly influence, using it hand in hand with God and his plan. Without Esther, Esther risking her life, the king probably wouldn't have realized what was going on, wouldn't have acted in time. And that, but God also timed it so the king's heart was prepared to receive Esther's request when she came. So here we have four examples of women's influence, a powerful force for good when aligned with God's plan, but also a very powerful force for evil when in opposition to God. So ladies, that's a choice that you guys have today. God has gifted you with a powerful influence. How will you use that? Will you use it for good? Will you use it for evil? With those thoughts, let's stand for prayer and remain standing for the closing song as well. Father in heaven, thank you for the way you have created each of us, men and ladies, with our different gifts and talents as well as our weaknesses. We give you control of our lives. We ask that you would direct and lead us for your ultimate plan. Watch over us as we go from here. Protect us and guide us until we meet again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.